get started. Let's see. Today is Tuesday, April 26th, which means April's almost over. And what is this shenanigan we call time moving fast? Oh I'm reading gosh. a book about it right now. Tell us, tell us more about, about it. About time moving fast. Yes. <gasps> okay, so this book is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, I think. is, But it's oh. basically about how time management is a whole big bucket of poop. And that we have 4,000 weeks to be alive. Like mm. literally that's like, if you live to be 80, you live for 4,000 weeks. And how that's do you- That's it? Your... Yep, that's it. So take a deep breath. Receive oh my gosh. That. Receiving. Wow. <laughs> so like, so it's, a, it's about that we've created this monster, this thing it, that somebody describes how we view time as a conveyor belt going past us mm -hmm. and these buckets that we have to fill up. And if we're filling them up quickly enough while the conveyor belt goes by, then we can pat ourselves on the back and be like, good job. We're using our time wisely. If we don't fill one up, then we feel mm -hmm. guilty. If we don't have, if we have too much stuff to put into them and we can't fill them the right way, then we feel bad. And we're too busy and it's too stressful trying to fill them all up. All that to say, we got it wrong. There's yeah, something I wrong. I just also visualize that I Love Lucy episode with the chocolates. Oh my gosh. <laughs> She's like eating them and stuffing them in her shirt. <laughs> her and Ethel, right? That's yes. kind of more when you said that. I was like, okay, buckets of water. No, I'm, this is chocolate and it's chocolate. flying by. My stomach and I'm trying to stuff it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm fumbling and it's too much. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's my recommendation. This book is, it's blowing my mind and it's, I think it's so good for us. I love the idea of thinking about, we literally have 4,000 weeks. Like, what do we want our lives to be? And Oh my gosh. And I'm 40. So I only have 2000 weeks. I just want so many. I more. hope you did the other 2000. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I did. Okay. Last week, maybe not <laughs> last week, last week. I know. How about all those weeks I'm on my period? You know, oh that's a shaky gosh. time. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Oh dear. Okay. I'm going to get this okay. book and I'm going to do, <laughs> I'm going to read it. I was about to say that I'm going to do better. And that's probably the whole point yeah, is that's to the not whole thing. think that it's, way. I know. Yes. Change your thinking in that. I know. Okay. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that so, <note>. yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Debbie Downer, Micah. Come I love on. I love it, Micah. No, I feel inspired. All right. I love that kind of stuff because I could be like that too. I love a good drab outlook or like, you know, something to work on and then be like, okay. <laughs> <sighs> Gird your loins. Let's go. Um, speaking of things we need to be healed from, oh. uh, our view of time management, check. Let's mm -hmm. be healed from that. Also, everything else. So um, that's, that's why. <laughs> add it all to the list. Let's add it all. So today, I'm really excited about our guest. So let's get to it. Let's shout some worth. Let's shift some narratives for people with Down syndrome. Today, we're sharing a conversation I got to have with Amy Julia Becker, a mama to a daughter with Down syndrome, an author, 
and a good friend of the podcast. Let's get to it. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. So besides being uh, woefully managed by time, the conveyor belt of time, tell us more. What's How's everybody doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Just checking right along in this household. Oh, Sunflower is on the sweetest little baseball team with other kiddos with disabilities. And it's been amazing. And she's a little baseball star. I'm so proud of her. And she loves it. That's, That's so fun. Ace yeah. is going to do challenger baseball too this year, Mercedes. It's just so, so cute. <laughs> but he doesn't start until this week, like the week okay. this, this episode is airing. So I'll keep you updated. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, Macy's I... on a team too. Yeah. But it's around. not, it's a, it's sort of like challenger, but it's a different thing. What's, is there an age group, Merce? That I was going to say, I was going to say that it's so fun because the next hour I see the older friends coming by and it just makes me excited. I kind of, not that I want to ditch my daughter, but I do want to go chat with them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, hi, my friends. <laughs> so Macy's team doesn't have an age limit and like, it's whoever wants to be on the team. There's kids oh, younger okay. than her. And then kids older last week, Josh goes, I think the the man next to Macy on the field has a beard. I'm like, oh. yes, he has <laughs> Oh, they can be any age. So there's any age, maybe because we had a lot, lot of signups, but Sunny's pretty much, um, it's hard to tell at her age with the different sizes, but there's definitely an adult age group that meets an hour after her. And then that's fun. Younger, her same peer group has a beard. That's so man has a beard. (laughs) Sure does, but it's the best. (laughs) I mean, it's so good. It's like, this is y'all. Hey, Hey, dear world, if you don't start making the world more inclusive for our kiddos, then I'm just going to hop on over here with all the people with disabilities and enjoy my life. That's how I feel like y'all are missing out because it's so good. And every like the sense of belonging that Mason feels when she's in that crowd, like it's, it's it's just in the atmosphere, you know, it's really sweet. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. We should get on with this episode because Amy, Julia, is a genius. This book is rocking my world. But before we do that, let's do a review. So we have a review from Lindsay's who says amazing content. So many good resources each week. And I love that short and sweet to the point. We hope to always be doing that, giving you good content and good resources. We're grateful for all of our guests like today's guest. Um, Thank you for leaving that review. And if you want to leave a review, we'd love for you to do that. You can go to Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and then leave that review and we can read it aloud next week. And we appreciate you and all of your support listeners. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I'm so excited to get to this interview with Amy Julia Becker, who we had on early on in, in the podcast episode 26. Mm-hmm. So if you listeners hear this one and go, wow, I want to hear more from her, go back and listen. Amy Julia is so wise. Uh, just has such an amazing perspective on raising her daughter Penny and on the world and faith and 
and meaning, really. So I'm excited. Okay, here we go. All right, friends, I am here with my dear and wise friend, Amy Julia Becker. She is a mother to three children. One is her beautiful 16-year-old daughter with Down syndrome. She's a wife, a speaker, a podcaster, and the author of a brand new book called To Be Made Well. We're going to chat all about the important topics from that book and so much more. Welcome to the show, Amy Julia Becker. It's really nice to be here with you, Micah. Thank you for having me. It is so lovely to be here with you. And just so all you listeners know, Amy Julia is my IRL friend. If you aren't, if you don't know code, that is for in real life. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, so I'm just delighted to be here with her. Um, she was actually one of our early guests, episode 26, so 130 episodes ago. Amazing. Uh, yeah. And so if you love what you hear today and you want to go back and listen to whatever it was we talked about that day, who knows? I need to go back and listen. Yeah, I think it was after I had my last book, White Picket Fences. I think it was about I think it that. was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Oh, lovely. Okay. Well, I adore Amy Julia's books. I adore her because she's my friend. And I think I talk about this in that episode. Amy Julia was my, my lifeline, my go-to when I received my prenatal diagnosis. And she was the person I called. And um, she will for forever hold that space for me um, as, as a friend of my heart who carried me through that time. So let's just start this out crying. <laughs> well, it is, you know, it's such an honor. I'm sure some listeners have had this experience, like kind of being on both sides of that story, where once you're in that position of having like an older child with Down syndrome, and you realize the like celebration that it means like the, the gift of the child, the mm -hmm. sense of wonder and joy and awe and, and, but also like the honor of being trusted with someone else's experience of whatever it is when you get a prenatal or postnatal diagnosis, certainly of some measure of like, this was unexpected. And sometimes some sense of fear or grief, or um, even, you know, sometimes at least for me, shame or guilt or, you know, all that confusion, I don't know. It just feels like really an honor to be trusted with that. And then also such a um, beautiful thing to watch, you know, these little humans grow up and become who they were meant to be. So anyway, I love it. I love it too. Well, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your fam your family, and uh, especially let them know about Penny and just your background. Sure. So uh, yeah, I am a writer and a speaker um, uh, in Washington, Connecticut, which is a little town in Western Connecticut, have three kids, Penny, William, and Marilee. And Penny's 16 now. So she is a sophomore in high school. She just um, spent her winter 
on the cheerleading team for the first time, which was a tremendous joy to her and to us. So grateful for that. Uh, and I do a lot of thinking about faith, family, and disability. I have a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Seminary um, and do a lot of teaching and speaking that has to do with both the Bible and disability and culture um, and have recently in these, like really the past seven or eight years, especially been thinking a lot about healing and not just about physical healing. In fact, not even primarily about physical healing, although that's part of it, but thinking about um, what does it mean when we think about disability and healing? What does it mean when we think about social healing? What does it mean for Jesus to be a healer? All of those types of questions. And that's what led to this most recent book, To Be Made Well. Wonderful. And I, I've i just finished your book and found like the most, I mean, there's so many, it's a treasure trove of wisdom is mm. what I'm trying to say. Uh, and I found, you know, one of the main things that you have to say is, that healing both of our body and our spirits, our hearts, that that begins with vulnerability, with um, opening ourselves up to reveal our pain. Mm -hmm. And, and that it begins with this, like that healing comes from a place of love. Um, yeah. Because vulnerability leads to love. And I just find that so profound. And I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, as you know, most are, you know, are some of our listeners are people of, of faith, some of them aren't. And we, um, but we love to approach topics like this, even for people who don't consider themselves to be religious or spiritual necessarily, but because there's so much wisdom for everyone to find when we're talking about healing like this, like, being tuned in to our own needs in our bodies and especially as caregivers and loved ones of people with down syndrome so i'm excited to talk to you about how uh how having penny in your life has like helped you develop really this like foundation of wisdom that this book is written on mm. so i was hoping you would kind of start with um your story of bodily pain <laughs> in the in the case of like how the medicalization of healing mm. in our culture can sometimes harm us or how we can focus so much on getting medication into our bodies and mm -hmm. not pay attention to the root underneath it we talk about that yeah, Totally. Because I think it's a, like, we tend to go in one direction or the other, which is either I'm not having medication or I'm only having medication as opposed to this sense of if healing is about our bodies, our minds and our spirits. And if our, if, and if we are integrated selves, which I don't think we always, I don't always think of myself that way. Then I think Western culture can be like, separate the body, the mind, and the spirit when they're really inseparable. And so the way I see medication is that medication can be an interruption in a good way of pain. And so it's like giving space, whether that's the mental pain of something like depression or anxiety, 
or the and the emotional pain that can be associated there or the a physical pain of like in my case I write about having a lower back problem mm -hmm. where Advil did interrupt the pain but for me to just keep every day having lower back pain that I medicate with Advil it's like this is not actually stopping this is not allowing space for healing. All it's doing is interrupting the pain and interrupting the pain can be a way to then say, is there anything else going on? I need to ask some questions about where this pain is coming from and what is maybe it's communicating to me, um, how I might be able to connect to other people, to stress in my life, to God in this place. But when we reduce ourselves to our bodies or think about medication as the only possible answer for anything that's going on in our bodies or our minds, honestly, um, and spirits, then I think we just really miss out on the possibilities for healing. And we see that being harmful, I think, for people with disabilities in, first of all, seeing people with who are living in disabled bodies um, or with intellectual disabilities as like problems that need to be fixed, mm -hmm. as opposed to what is intrinsic to who you are? Because I do think when anyone is experiencing pain or suffering, we want to ask where is the healing for this? And as many people in the disability community know, much of the pain and suffering that is experienced by people with disabilities and their families is, does not reside in the body of the person with the disability. It resides in a culture that says, we don't really know how to have you here, or we don't want you here, or we're not concerned with your needs. And so that's where this like social healing is, I think, primary when it comes to talking about disability and the need for healing. But most individuals in our society would say, if we're talking about disability and a need for healing, we're talking about medicalization and hospitals and fixing what is wrong with your body, which I think is a really distorted understanding, certainly of my daughter, your son, right? Um, and, and all sorts of other people. Um, so yeah, it's not that there's no role for medication. I'm super grateful for Advil and you know for all sorts of other um, of other ways of experiencing that relief. And yet when I relied in this case only on Advil, um, it did not make me well. Yeah, will you tell us a little bit of that story? You talk about yeah. how you were a um, a young mom trying to care for your kids, feeling overwhelmed, going through a move. And that's when your back pain started. And it took you a long time to realize how interconnected your emotions and experiences were with your physical pain. Yeah, I look back on it now and it seems really obvious that like it was not lifting heavy objects that caused my, you know, <laughs> and or lifting my children, having kids sitting on my lap. But that's what I was telling myself was that the reason my lower back was aching throughout most days and eventually my tailbone was also hurting. And the reason that I would wake up in the middle of the night every night and not be able to go back to sleep because my lower back hurt. Um, I told myself that was just about the way I was using my body. And so I spent, I mean, a good year, you know, going to see a um, massage therapist, going to a class to strengthen my core, getting a new mattress, you know, trying all of these physical things and that usually didn't work and just resulted in taking some more Advil. And eventually um, someone suggested that I meet with a yoga teacher who uh, had been a physical therapist and yoga teacher. And I just thought, well, why not? 
So I had a one-on-one meeting with her and we sat down and, you know, even just sitting cross-legged hurt a lot at that time. Uh, But I sat down with her and I told her that I was pretty sure that I had a problem with alignment. And she said, every time I hear someone use the word alignment, I think that the problem is not in your body, it's in your mind. Uh, or it's in your life. I guess it's not in your body, it's in your life. And when she said that, I just started talking. And I talked and talked and talked. And we, you know, she asked some questions, but we went back and forth for an hour when I said, yeah, you know, my life does feel like it's out of alignment where I am this person who has all these ideas and I want to be writing and I want to be speaking and I want to make a difference in the world. And I'm only known as a mom and a wife. And I'm not even doing that particularly well. And I show up at these parties with all these people who only know me like that. So I drink the third glass of wine and then I feel crappy about myself and, you know, on and on and on. And over the course of that conversation, it was as if there was like a valve, you know, like an inner tube valve on my back and it got um, turned and all the pain just seeped out and I could feel it happening. And I was so grateful, but also confused about what was happening because it felt like a miraculous healing experience that I had by sitting cross-legged for an hour and talking (laughs) with a yoga teacher. Like I was like, what just happened? I don't understand. And I did say to her at the end, I was like, I'm almost embarrassed somehow to say this, like, um, but I, it's better. Like it's all gone. And it's been with me for years. Like, this is not something that like happened last week, you know? And she said, um, In order for healing to happen, you don't need to solve all of the problems. You just need to acknowledge the source of the pain. Mm. And for me, that was this truth that I carried with me, whether it was about my back or about anything else, where it was like, what is the source of the pain? Uh, Because if I can begin to get at that, um, and again, I do that as a person of faith. And so I'm in conversation with God about that. But to your point, I think that's possible outside of the realm of faith as well. Like, what is the source of the pain? When I feel that, like, where there's tightness in my body or, you know, even we say like hurt in my heart, you know, when I um, read that news account and I feel, you know, like what's the source of the pain and what does it mean to acknowledge that and to look for healing in those places? Yeah, and that becomes a foundation of what you explore in the book and what it means to like seek holistic healing Mm -hmm. and that there's so much more going on than just what's in our bodies. Um, How has, how do you think raising Penny and having a child with Down syndrome helped you become more aware of your holistic self, your connections between your mind and your body and your spirit? I think probably it started by the recognition that my like prioritization of the mind was really um, limiting me actually. Like when Penny was first born and I was, have always been someone who loves books and reading and been in intellectual spaces. And so to have a child with an intellectual disability to me at first, that felt really limiting But instead, what I think it helped me to see was that when I only lived a life of the mind and I was not aware of emotions, of a life of the spirit, of um, what it means to live in a body, all of those things, I I was the one with the limited life, not her. Like that she actually invited my world to like really expand in beautiful ways. So I'd say that was the first thing. But I think there's more to that, more to it than that, because 
as I began to understand, I think the root of healing is actually belovedness and belonging. Mm -hmm. And yes, our bodies are a part of our belovedness and our sense of belonging. But um, for me, having a child with a disability and recognizing her belovedness um, and her intrinsic value, independent of what she can or cannot do, and her like what it means for her to be a human with needs and with gifts, all of that was not just applicable to her, but also to me. And I think that was really crucial in terms of my own understanding of healing was what would it mean for me to believe my own belovedness and not to think that that comes because of my achievements. Um, and because I continue to like perform and do, and that shift for me started with recognizing who Penny is. And then I was able to say, what if that's true for me as well and live into that? And there's a tremendous healing work. I think that happens if we believe that we are beloved. Yeah. I feel like that's such a, such a mirror image of my own story. Um, and, you know, I think this kind of goes along, this next question goes along with that. You talked about in your book about growing up in a culture of success and how in that culture you learned to deny your own limits and um, and push yourself, even if that meant like pushing yourself towards sickness and like physical disorder for the sake of accomplishment, right? Yeah. And part of what I heard you saying is like that, that, that transformation of, of coming to see your own belovedness helped you um, transform your own understanding of limits and like what success really looks like for you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So going back a little bit, which is like the introduction to the book, I had a severe eating disorder in high school that started with or was combined with a paralyzed stomach. And when I look back on that whole experience of myself in high school, that's exactly what I see as a kid who just pushed and pushed and pushed um, and denied limits. And that was true throughout this six years of really um, being very sick and very sad. Um, and yet also getting winning awards and, you know, my um, high school yearbook, I got the award of being the person with the longest college brag sheet. Like I was quote unquote successful. And I was also like 96 pounds and uh, was on my way to Princeton and w ended up in the ER within a few months because my heart was about to stop. Like I was so sick and yet quote unquote, so successful. Um, and I think, you know, parents would have looked in and said, yeah, I want my kid to be like her. She, you know, doesn't break the rules and she gets all the awards and she gets the good grades and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, there was just this like real deterioration and paralysis on my insides. And that there was healing that happened before Penny came into my life related to all of those issues. And yet at the same time, even when I, um, you know, was kind of through healed from this eating disorder, I still, as a young adult, um, routinely would get sick enough that I would be in bed for a week. And it was like on a cycle, you know, it was like every two months or so. And I think that really did have to do with, instead of saying no to people, what my body would say no. And so I'd have to just cancel everything for the week rather than me having to learn how to 
say, okay, I can't actually say yes to everything. And if you're disappointed or not, what, or if I'm disappointed in myself for it, so be it. Like, this is what it means for me to be a human with limits. But what, when Penny came, so I was starting to learn that, but when Penny came into my life, I really did start to see limitations differently. First of all, I think I had always associated limits and brokenness with each other. Like I didn't really think there was a place for limits that were good and God-given. But once I started to see that, wait a second, like brokenness and limitation are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And admitting my limits actually opens me up to love because it means I can't do it all. I need other people. Again, in my situation, like I need the love of God. And so limits and neediness go hand in hand. And that can mean suffering or it can mean love. Uh, when we are vulnerable, back to what you were saying before, when we're vulnerable, we open ourselves up to wounding, but we also open ourselves up to love. And that is ultimately having a child with Down syndrome whose limits were much more evident or like um, kind of announced by the world. Um, and that was what helped me to recognize my own limits and that those were actually good, not even just like neutral, but they were good. They were invitations. Hmm. I love that, that they were invitations. That something we've talked about, Heather and Mercedes and I, that has come up more recently in our conversations is that in our Down syndrome community, I think we, like generally as a community, we're, we have made peace with our children's diagnoses. Like the, that this is um, with our expectations. And, but in, in doing that, a lot of times as a community, we put a new standard of like, this is what it means to be a successful person with Down syndrome. And we start to see who gets celebrated in that space. Right. Like, and it's, it's wonderful people doing wonderful things, but it's people doing extraordinary things. People with Down syndrome doing extraordinary things. And sometimes it feels like we have just kind of moved the bar in a little, a little bit and then still kept mirroring the culture's value of status. Yeah. And, and like, you know, you're a great person with Down syndrome if you yeah. are, you know, on TV or if you are a lobbyist or if you drive a car or, you know, yeah. fill in the blank. And um, I thought it was really interesting. You have a chapter that's all about how status and success can be bar barriers to our own healing. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, definitely. So um, this has been my experience that when Penny was first born, I, uh, A, very much wanted her to be a quote unquote successful person with Down syndrome. I mean, I will tell this little story. I got it um, on some Instagram post I wrote the other day. Someone wrote back to me and they were like, I think Penny is going to conquer the world. And I really wanted, instead of just being like, thank you, to be like, I think Penny is going to be a beautiful human being because that's really, I'm like, no, she's been conquering the world. Like, and that is anyway. Um, but all this is to say when she was first born, I was definitely still in that mindset. And I did, um, I really wanted to break down barriers of exclusion. And I think that's a good thing, right. To break down barriers of exclusion and to advocate for the value and um, possibilities for people with down syndrome. 
But over time, I began to see that all I was wanting was for Penny to have an opportunity to become like me. And there was this implicit sense that my life was better and was the norm. Like that was the, um, and not just the norm, but like the ideal, more of the ideal. But then I look at my life, whether it's like the kid who's 96 pounds and going to the emergency room because of all of her fantastic achievements, um, or even just like the young mom with the back pain and like who's drinking too much wine. Mm -hmm. And I look at statistics about communities like mine, which are like affluent and predominantly white and homogenous in those ways. And it's like, there's a lot of depression. There's a lot of substance abuse. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of, you know, hurt and heartbreak. So it's like, wait, why am I inviting my child to become like me? Um, And why do I see that as like the goal here? Because there's an isolation to the life that I live when I live in that individualistic achievement world. And I can put her on that same track and say, you be in an individualistic achievement world that, yeah, it's a little bit different because you have Down syndrome, but it's still essentially competing against other people with disabilities. Like, wait a second, what's going on here? And so it seemed to me that status was this barrier, not just in terms of um, excluding people who also had, you know, every right to the opportunities and certainly the sense of value within our society that I have, but it was also isolating me. And that meant that it was impeding the healing that I could receive from being in community with people who were not seen in our culture as like, quote unquote, successful and all the beauty and richness and depth that I have to learn from people who are not going to be, you know, spending their days talking on podcasts and writing books, but instead who have maybe an understanding of love, of presence, of care, of encouragement, uh, you know, on down the list that I don't have. I mean, even just like, this is not Penny either, but like people who like to garden, I don't like to garden. It is really good for me to be around people who like know how to get their hands dirty and love the earth. Like there's just a, um, a breadth of humanity that I really miss out on. And there's a healing that comes in being in those types of communities and relationships, uh, that I can exclude myself from and be isolated. Um, and, and status, I think is, you know, at least one word that can describe that barrier and having Penny in my life is part of a healing process of recognizing how much I need people who are different than I am if I'm going to be made well. Yeah. One of the things that a story that you tell in the book is when you're taking Penny to a blood draw and she starts to feel really anxious about going in. And all of our listeners who care for a child with Down syndrome know about taking yeah. kids to a blood draw. Um, one of the things that was, it was just so meaningful to me to hear this story because she turns to you and asks if you can pray with her before you go in. You're waiting, it's COVID times, so you have to wait in the car to be called into the doctor's office. And you pray breath prayers together. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you would um, talk to us a little bit about that, um, what a breath prayer is, um, and and also how you taught Penny to 
tune into her anxiety and practice finding calm in those scary moments. I think so many of us parents with kids with disabilities feel overwhelmed by how hard those moments can be. And I know there are times when I really want to help Ace learn how to take deep breaths and calm his own body. And that feels really difficult. So will you first explain what breath prayers are and then explain or just tell us a little bit about how you began to teach Renee those things? I often um, will do a practice of, you know, actually, and I'll talk about doing this with Penny of just like breathing in through my nose with the word peace and breathing out through my mouth with the word anxiety. The idea of like, I'm giving over my anxiety, I'm taking in peace into my body. And there's something about um, combining our bodies with our, and our breath with the words of prayer that, um, I don't know, makes it more real, more powerful, um, and feel more possible, I guess. There's, for me with Penny, yes, doctor's offices um, of various types create anxiety for her for good reason. Um, thunderstorms are another place. Um, for a long time, Santa Claus, um, dogs. I mean, I'm sure many people like have their list. And even for her now, I mean, she's 16. And if we're going for a walk together and there's a dog, I mean, she will, I mean, just hold my hand so tight. Like, it's just she does not know what's going to happen. And if that dog is going to jump and it's scary to her. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as though having this practice of breath prayers has like taken away all her fear at the same time. I think that recognition that like fear shows up in our bodies and we do, there's something we can do about that. There's a way we can respond to it. So probably, I mean, I don't even know if she was as young as ACE is when we first started doing breath prayers. Like, I don't know. Um, but that sense of uh, let's try to be in our bodies with our fear and not dismiss that, right? Like not, oh, you should get over it. You've done a blood draw before. It's not that big of a deal. But just to say, and in our case, like I, Penny has grown up trusting that God loves her and that God wants to be with her and help her. And so we do, we sit and just very um, meditatively, slowly for a while, we will hold hands or put our hands like on our hearts, um, either our own hearts or one another's hearts or backs or something like that. And I just say, okay, let's breathe in the peace of God and let's try to breathe out all of our fears and worries. And we will ask God to take it and, you know, kind of give some instructions like that. And then we do that together. And I will say it really does help. I mean, there's, again, just breathing for any of us humans in a slow way calms us down. Like there are physiological things that happen. I think when we can combine that with prayer and invite God to be present with us in those scary moments, there's like an additional component that can bring peace. And this is true for me as a grown up. It's not only true for Penny as, you know, a teenager, um, yeah, sitting in the car and worried about going into a doctor's office. I love that. I think it's true for me too. And I think it's that inspires me to not even just with Ace, but with my other older boys to give them um, those to help them learn those kinds of mm-hmm. practices that can really help in those moments. You know, I think I've for a long time been like, take a deep breath. But right. and, you know, and with Ace, I sing the Daniel Tiger to- song. Um, but yeah, I haven't really helped them learn how to combine that with with prayer 
So that's inspiring to me. And the last question I wanted to ask is just about um, if you could give us a general uh, the a general explanation of the story of Jesus with Jairus and the bleeding woman. You kind of base your whole yeah. book on that, and you come back to it over and over. And I think it's such an interesting dichotomy of these two different stories in the in the Gospels that um, in the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament that where Jesus encounters two different people with two really different needs. Yeah. So this is a story that's captured my attention for a long time and it shows up actually in Matthew, Mark and Luke, but it's the Mark version of it, which is the longest one that I used as kind of this really the center of the book. So it's a story where Jesus is um, showing up in a town and there's a crowd of people and through the crowd comes a man named Jairus and Jairus is a synagogue leader um, who therefore has power and authority in his community. He clearly has some measure of wealth because he's got a house um, and people seem to you know, know who he is. And he falls at Jesus's feet and asks Jesus to come to his house because his 12 year old daughter is sick and is dying. So Jesus agrees to go with him. And as they're walking to Jairus's house, it's uh, Mark says that Jesus felt that power went out from him. And we learn that there is a woman who has heard that Jesus is there and is a healer. And this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And we learn also that she has spent all the money that she has on doctors and it didn't make anything better. It only made it worse. So she's a person who's kind of the opposite of Jairus in terms of her social position. She's a woman. She doesn't have a name. She has no money. She's in pain. Um, and she's outcast. And that is true, probably, whether or not you're in a religious community that considers blood as a sign of uncleanness, like she wouldn't be allowed to worship in the temple. But we can imagine even in our society, someone who is in that degree of pain and suffering and bleeding, that there would be a degree of like social ostracism that comes with it. So she takes a big risk. And she reaches out and she touches the, um, what probably was like the tassel on Jesus's garment. It's our translations say the hem, but the uh, scholars think it's probably like the tassels that are hanging from his robe. And when she does that, she can feel in her body that her bleeding has ceased. They're kind of like, okay, story over. Keep going to Jairus's. Like this other thing happened along the way. But Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, uh, we're in a big crowd of people. Everyone touched you. Could we please move on? But Jesus insists on knowing who touched me. And so this woman comes up to him and falls at his feet. And it says, Mark says, she told the whole truth. So we don't know how long that was, but presumably Jairus is watching while Jesus has this encounter with this woman and, you know, keeps talking to her. And it's like, she's already been healed. Come on, come on, come on. But what Jesus says to her is, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And then as soon as he says that, Jairus's servants come and they say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. And at this point, Jesus turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. They walk to Jairus's house. Jesus goes upstairs with a small group of people, just three disciples, and then Jairus and his wife. And he takes her by the hand and um, his Jairus's daughter wakes up from her sleep or from her death. It's a little unclear in the text what's happening. Um, and Jesus tells her mom and dad to give her something to eat. 
So there are these two stories that have, I mean, so much richness and depth to them. Um, and I think tell us so much about, um, well, there really are three sections in the book, the nature of healing, the barriers to healing, and then the invitation for all of us to participate in healing. So yeah, that's my kind of long summary of <laughs> Mark chapter five. I love it. I think there there is, I love how deeply you go into each of those things. And I feel like I have experienced that story in a really new um, transformative way mm. just by walking through that with your teaching. Um, so I, I'm just so grateful for you joining us and talking with me today about these things. Um, I'm hoping that you will tell us um, anything else that you want us to know about your book to be made well. And um, if you also would mention your other books and sure. where, where our listeners can find you online, that would be me. Yeah. yeah. So I've written four books, um, which all actually would be relevant to, I think this audience in different ways. So a good and perfect gift came out in 2011. And that's just this story of, um, you know, when Penny, was first born in the first couple of years of her life and what it took for me to be able to receive her as the gift that she is. And then I wrote a book that came out in 2014 called Small Talk, which is about um, really what me as a mom receiving all of our children, including Penny, um, and recognizing like what is happening as my life seems to be falling apart with small children, um, what is actually being like shaped and formed in me that is good. Um, how am I learning from them in an unexpected way? And then 2018, White Picket Fences, which is a memoir really about my whole life and uh, really coming at the understanding of privilege and social class and distinctions, but through the lens of disability um, with also some, uh, I think, fairly intense, you know, or like intentional conversation around race and then to be made well. So all of those books are, you know, available kind of wherever books are sold and, I am also pretty findable online because nobody has the name Amy Julia Becker. So you can, that's um, yeah, really nice. Uh, who knew? In the pre-internet days when my parents were naming me, but amyjuliabecker.com, Amy Julia Becker on Instagram and on Twitter, Amy Julia Becker writer on Facebook. So I would love to connect with anyone, um, anyone who wants to. Wonderful. Well, Amy Julia, thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing your stories and your wisdom. And I hope our listeners will take a look at our show notes and find links to your books and your yeah. website and all the things and um, learn more from you because I think you are a deep well of wonderfulness. So, <laughs> oh my God, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, until next time, my dear, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, can we just, I, I took notes during this and I actually got to do an interview on my Instagram account with Amy Julia a few weeks ago and her book. Can I just read one part from her book? Yeah. You guys, that yeah, this so is good. the line Thanks that's too. rocking my world. Um, at the very end, she talks about social healing and mm. 
um, I'm feeling that with, I mean, you guys are gotta read the book and you heard the interview. It's, it is a complex conversation like that. Your physical healing, your spiritual healing, communal healing, social healing. There's like all these layers to it. And I had two kids with down syndrome who needed physical healing in their bodies and to receive that. Um, and there was a time when that whole part with their health was very tender. And I now with Mason as a 13 year old am in a space where the tender part is the social healing. Like there's so much brokenness that we're living in, stepping into every day in a social sense. And I see the brokenness in her and, and she doesn't communicate it in the ways that I would, but, um, my sense is that there is a deep ten brokenness and tenderness when it comes to social healing that needs to take place for her that I don't know will in her lifetime, but we're working towards that, you know, generations to come. You know, she talks about belonging towards the very end of the book. And this is one chunk that listed out to me. She says, belonging happens when each member of a community is so crucial to the health and wholeness of the community that the community aches for any member's absence from any member's absence. Belonging happens when each individual is one critical component of an interdependent whole. Belonging happens when we aren't us without you, when your presence is integral to our identity. And I feel like we live in a society that doesn't see disabled people as integral to the identity of the health and wholeness of our society. And even jumping back up to talking about the baseball, the beginning of this episode, like how how full and healed I feel when I am with the disabled community because of how I'm not, I can't be completely me without them here. Mm -hmm. And what a, what a privilege and a gift it is in my life, um, to have that space opened up to me so that I can become more whole. Mm -hmm. And I see so much brokenness in our society and this isn't the only key, you know, but I just feel like, oh, if everybody would, if our society would make a space for the Macy's of the world to, and say, I can't be whole without you here. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that it would bring so much healing mm-hmm. to individuals in our society as a whole. hundred percent. Mm, I love that. I think that there's, I mean, this interview can't do justice to how rich this book is, how much there is to think about and chew on. And, um, and I've just had it in my mind for these past few weeks as I have been reading it and thinking about it. So I just highly recommend to our listeners to go grab that book and think it through, whether you come at it from a faith perspective or not. Um, there's so much good to think about. We are going to take a little break. And before we do that, though, let's let's celebrate some good news because that's always a fun thing to do. All right, we'll be right back. Hey, friends, Micah here. Eight years ago, I published my first book, Found, a story of questions, grace, and everyday prayer. It's a memoir about the early years of motherhood, the transition to a new identity as mom, and how the expectations and challenges that come with that gift can turn your world upside down. It's also a story about faith, how when our spiritual lives unravel, it's never the end of the story. It's always simply an invitation to something new. For Found's eighth anniversary, I'm hosting a book club. We're reading it again 
together. Grab yourself a copy of Found wherever books are sold. There's a link in our show notes. And sign up for the book club for free on my website, micaboyette.com. I'll send you a discussion guide so you can gather with your found friends and chat each week before joining me for a weekly group Zoom. Reading a book with the author? What do you say? Find me at micaboyette, M-I-C-H-A-B-O-Y-E-T-T.com for more details. Does anybody have some good news to celebrate this week? My ladies. I do. Sunflower has had a good semester of making friends. And I know. And we had a play day and it's just like going to be an ongoing intentional play day with another family. Um, there's this sweet girl named Olivia who has sought out Sunflower every Wednesday forever and, and always brings like a plethora of little colorings and gifts to Sunny every time she sees her and always wants to like be next to Sunny. And it's been really, really sweet. And sometimes it takes a lot of effort for me to set up a play date and to find like childcare for the boys so that I can you know, navigate a play date with just sunflower really well. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to make it happen. And it's just been so good um, because it's sisters. So this one girl, Olivia, and then her sister, Adele, they um, love to hang out with sunflower and, you know, sunflower, um, she, I wouldn't call her a social butterfly. (laughs) She loves her brothers, but um, she's a hard nut to crack. And I feel like these girls are patient with her in that and don't hold it against her or don't move on, which is like what I've prayed for because Sunny needs a lot of room and a lot of grace. And then I feel just like with time and trust, she will be that also that mutual friend to them as well. So it's been wonderful to have such a great mom on the opposite side involved with just this intentional friendship. So it's good. I love that. Such good news. Good Yay. for you, Mercedes. Yes. For prioritizing that. That's not I, easy. It isn't, but it's good. Yeah, it's yes. good. So good. Um, I have a little bit of good news on a very different note. August and Macy both rode on the Jungle Cruise ride at Disneyland. No, which they've been very opposed to it. And when they're in opposition to that, I mean, there's really no, nothing you can do no to change their minds. Yeah. And it's fine. Then just don't ride the ride, but they decided they wanted to, and then they were so nervous and then they loved it. It was great. So I love when, I love when they do a new thing, you know, yes. try something that they're afraid of. Um, that's my good news. The jungle cruise. Yes. Yes. And we also have good news from a listener at Jen underscore Steffi underscore Stanton said, Joe Steffi and his business Poppin' Joe's Gourmet Kettle Corn was featured in a custom promotional video this week. <gasps> so, Joe, way to go. Joe, Joe. So, I when I get done recording this, I'm going to go look up Joe Poppin' Joe's Gourmet Kettle Corn. So cute. Poppin' yeah. Joe's. That's We bought we really bought that. Good. You have? Yeah, I'm familiar with I'm familiar with this business. And cool. good we work. need some in our, uh, we need Christmas. to remember that for our holiday gift card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. 
cool. Well, thanks, Jen, for sharing that with us. That's amazing. We're excited. And everybody, it's time to wrap up. So let's, I just want to give some thanks to Josh Avis for editing this episode so well. Well done, Josh. And Val Schleter for producing it. And if you like this episode, share it with friends and family. Think of five people right now who would really love to listen to this. And then just, you know, you, you copy the link, put it in your thing, you text it. So easy. Or you Facebook it or email or call your grandma on the phone. Say, grandma, you should listen to this. <laughs> then help her through the whole process. Exactly. To- subscribe every week so it downloads. Exactly. <laughs> Yay. And check us out on the luckyfeepodcast.com for our show notes and all the things that we talked about on today's episode with Amy Julia Becker. Yes. And be sure to follow us on social media at the Lucky Few Pod. And you can also check out our show notes for information on Amy Julia Becker, too. So you can follow her. Definitely. And if you've got some good news to share, we'd love to hear you hear that from you as well go to the lucky few pod on instagram leave us a dm with your good news or you can leave it in the comments section for any of the posts and guess what listener what are we going to tell them ladies you're slaying you're it. saying it slaying it you're slaying it we love you so much keep on keeping on we're here we're cheering for you always and forever and we can't wait to be together again next week bye bye bye, bye.